You would be surprised how much can be done through less than 140 characters. In today's episode, Jesse Stommel shares about how he engages his teaching with Twitter. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. I'm excited today to be welcoming to the show Jesse Stommel, and Jesse is here in a different capacity for the first time ever we're doing video over Skype, so we can actually see each other as we record, although you can't see him as you listen. (laughs) It does add an added dimension, which was pretty nice. Thanks for coming on Teaching in Higher Ed. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. I feel like before I start to talk a little bit about your biography, we should really come down on, are you a person who pronounces it pedagogy or pedagogy? Oh, what a perfect question to get us started, a debate. (laughs) We can maybe get into a little fight here over this. Um, I pronounce it pedagogy. Okay. And why do I pronounce it pedagogy? I think actually both pronunciations are accepted pronunciations of the word. For me, it just rolls off my tongue. It's an interesting word. To me, it's a word that is it's almost a little tough. It's a little, it's a little bit of a hard word, but I like that about it. Some people find the word alienating. I find that when you've got a word like that that's maybe difficult to pronounce, difficult to understand on first grasp, it actually forces you to kind of dig a little deeper. You want to feel what the word sounds like coming out of your mouth. It is the only word I can think of that I pronounce both ways. It just depends. And as you said, both ways are correct. The reason I asked that first is for those of you listening that haven't heard of Jesse before, he's the founder, director, and designer of an incredible, I would call it an online journal, although that's I feel like that's a limiting term in this case, but of a site called Hybrid Pedagogy or Pedagogy, depending. And, and maybe you can do a better job of describing what it is for people who haven't accessed the site before. I'm glad that you call it an online journal, but also are pushing on, on exactly what that would mean for it to be an online journal. Because really, when we launched the journal, for me, what it was, was when I grew up, I always wanted to have my own school. Essentially, when this idea started to germinate for me, it came out of many, many years of thinking, what would this school that I would build look like? The journal is not really as much uh, a, a sort of repository for articles and information, but it's a space for community and a space for learning and an engaged space for figuring out our teaching together. Um, and to me, that fits much more with the idea of what I think about a, what a school would be rather than what I think about a, what a conventional journal would be. I think part of the challenge is if, if you had just gone out there and done that solely, you might have not had the kind of success you had because embedded in that is the respect that comes from the peer review process. And I think that's what people would be nervous about if someone just started something. Yeah, but where's that research orientation going to be? And you have managed to do both in a both a real credible online journal, but at the same time, it feeds people like me who find journals, traditional journals to be so limited. For me, that title, hybrid, it meant both hybrid as in in the classroom and online. It meant hybrid as sort of disrupting the distinction between teachers and students. But it also meant hybrid in the sense that it's kind of a blog, kind of a journal, kind of a community, kind of a school, kind of peer-reviewed. Some things aren't peer-reviewed. Some things that we publish like announcements aren't peer-reviewed. 
essentially it's trying to be a little bit of all of the best thing of all these different worlds. And in addition to managing that site, you also are an assistant professor in the Department of Liberal Studies and the Arts at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, which is where you are now as I get to see you and others get to listen to you. And you had a, I don't know, do you want to talk about your injury? Is that something? Oh, that's sure. <laughs> I got to see um, it. <laughs> I'm actually sitting on my porch right now and I am I have basically been on bed rest for four and a half weeks because I was in Canada for the Digital Humanities Summer Institute, second day in Canada, um, just walking down a hill, rolled my ankle, didn't even hit the ground, heard a crack, and turns out that I had a broken ankle. And they said that they, um, the doctor said, the good news is it's a clean break. The bad news is it broke clean through. Um, so basically, my, uh, I've been in bed for the last 40 weeks. I just got cleared to move a bit about the world um, a week ago. So I'm trying to reacclimate to you know, what it's like to not be sitting in a bed all day. It's just dawning on me. You said Canada before we we press the record button, but I'm so dying to ask you about going to access healthcare in Canada versus doing it here. My because my mom, I, actually, I was born in Alaska. My dad had been drafted during the Vietnam, and his heroic war career was to go to Alaska to be a bookkeeper. So they drove up there with my brother at the time, and then I was born, and they had to access healthcare, I guess, on their way back down on their drive down to the states. And she talks about that it was the weirdest thing. I don't know if it's still like that today but just to walk in and where's all the forms I have to fill out? Where's all these? Oh, no, take care of it. You're with the army. It's okay. It's yeah, it was kind of a nutty thing. I probably just told that story completely wrong. Sorry, mom, if I got a lot of those facts <laughs> wrong. Well, I think we're gonna have to have me on again for another show. And we can have the topic be Canadian versus yes. US healthcare. That's, that's like an excellent, excellent idea. In the meantime, I'll continue on your bio, a PhD in English from the University of Colorado Boulder. And your key emphases are digital pedagogy, open education, and new media. You're an advocate for lifelong learning and the public digital humanities. And I'm actually going to save some of the courses that you teach for a little bit later in our conversation because I imagine you teach with Twitter on some of them. So I'm going to hold off on that. But I would love for me to share just a bit about your favorite book. It's fun. Moby Dick. Favorite film, Night of the Living Dead. You have a clever dog, Mary. Two Rascally Cats Loki, is that correct? Um, actually, uh, the cats are Loki and Odin, and actually my dog is now Emily. Um, I don't want to have a sad moment on your show, but <laughs> Mary lived a long life, Aww. 13 years, and now um, she has gone to a place where she's snapping. Um, yes. <laughs> and Emily, a little nine-month-old Boglin Terrier running around making my life chaotic. Oh, they, the nine months old, they'll do that. They'll do that. In your bio, you say that your likes, among your likes, are that one of them is to be kind. Would you talk a little bit about how that wound up on something being highlighted on your bio? I'm always trying to find things for my bios that give sort of a sense of what actually drives me as a person. We have always put all these things that we do. And in that particular bio, it was just a list of, you know, one thing after another that I do, things I like and things I do. And so it was a sense like, how do I capture what it is that drives me? And I think that that idea of kindness is really important to me. And I, to me, I would distinguish between niceness and kindness. Mm. Um, here I am in the Midwest, and um, I grew up being taught how to be nice. And to me, it's so much more difficult to be kind. So it's not about being polite. To me, kindness is about actually 
um, really kind of paying attention to people, paying attention to the world around you, paying attention to the situations that you're in. And really, I would say that kindness is what drives my pedagogy, that it's about seeing people for who they really are and engaging with their full selves. And I think part of it is also bringing your full self to the relationship that you have with your coworkers, with your students, with your, um, you know, the the uh, writers that I am an editor for on the journal, that you really sort of use that as the guiding ethic. It caught my eye because we we now have selected a preschool for my son, but uh, more than a year ago, we started that search. And that was one of the questions I asked, you know, how do you teach children to be kind? And I'm sad to say that all but one or two of them were thrown by that question and then didn't have a, even a decent answer to address it with. And I thought, I don't need him to learn Mandarin. I don't need him to learn French. I want him to learn to be a kind, in that case, going to be four-year-old boy. And that. so I, at any rate, I'm glad there's people yeah. focusing on being kind. It was interesting that when I, at one point, I said something on Twitter about that, that essentially we needed more kindness in education. And someone wrote back and essentially argued that what I had said was an aphorism. My response was to say that if only kindness were an aphorism. I mean, if only kindness were that widespread and that sort of universally embraced that it could become an aphorism, mm. that fine. <laughs> but the truth is that I think we actually do need to remind each other and remind ourselves to be kind all the time and that there's nothing aphoristic about that. Well, we're going to dive in now to talking about Twitter. And for people who are listening, this isn't an episode where we're going to be talking about the basics of Twitter. And if you're interested in finding out more about the basics because you haven't joined yet or dipped your toe into that social media outlet, I will be posting a link to Jesse's introduction to Twitter, which is a great resource you can use to get familiar. We're going to ask a couple of questions related to some big picture, but then really start talking specifically about teaching with Twitter. So I want to give you an idea of what to expect in our conversation to come. Starting out though with, I think a basic question, but perhaps not. How do you describe Twitter to a colleague who hasn't ever used it before? Um, I mean, I think that one of the things that I often get when I'm asked about Twitter is I get this sort of assumption that Twitter is a superficial medium, that there's something about the 140 character limit that is that, that sort of put, puts constraints on the dialogue and puts constraints on what happens there such that what you end up getting is what someone had for breakfast, what they're doing at that exact moment. I'm sitting on my porch, isn't it a great day? Um, and so I think the first thing that I want to talk to people about is actually what that 140 character limit does. And for me, I, I say that... Con- the constraints of Twitter are also its affordances. That essentially being asked to take an idea and put it in this constrained linguistic space of 140 characters forces us to think about and question and push on our thinking in ways that we wouldn't otherwise do. And for me, I think about someone like Emily Dickinson or Gertrude Stein. I'm certain that Gertrude Stein would have loved Twitter. But it's this idea, but if you think about how much can happen in an Emily Dickinson poem or how much can happen in a Gertrude Stein poem, and it's this idea that essentially some of our, our best epiphanies happen when we have those kind of constraints put on us, when we're forced to improvise within such a sort of constrained space. And so basically what I would say is that it's a space for that kind of um, improvisation. It's, a, it's, a, it's an example of what I do in my pedagogy, which is I, I describe it as improvisation within a framework. And this is something that I've talked about with Sean Michael Morris, who is my co-director of hybrid pedagogy. And we've written a little bit about this idea of improvisation within a framework. 
this idea that improvisation doesn't happen unless there's some sort of frame or there's something like essentially a playground. A playground has boundaries, it has limits. And those boundaries and limits are exactly what allow you to have the playfulness and the improvisation within that space. And I think the same thing is true about Twitter, that it becomes this really improvisational, this really emergent space where discussions happen very organically. And, and those are some of the things I like about it. Is there anything then when you're describing it to a group of students, a class that you'll be teaching, something that you need to call out that you don't emphasize to your colleagues about it as far as it entering into your classroom experience? Um, I think that, I mean, one thing I would definitely uh, try and impress upon my students and, and also in a way have them remind me of is the ways in which it becomes a space for us to try out ideas, mm. that it's not a space, I mean, some of the places where we write, and I teach writing, so I'm often thinking about, you know, the, in, the difference between product and process and what is, is there ever a final product of a piece of writing? Twitter, for me, is really a space for trying on ideas. It's not a space as much for our final thinking on a subject. And instead, what it really encourages is us to iterate, us to have an idea, express it, see how people respond to it, and then have another idea, whether that's right in that, on that same day or a few hours later or whether it's three months later. Um, and then the other thing that I, would, that I would point out to students is that it's really a space where, um, where dialogue is this sort of highest ethic. It's a space where essentially what happens when you have 140 character um, tweets is that you tweet something and someone responds, you tweet again, it becomes this kind of banter. It's not what I'm doing right now where I'm speaking to you and saying a lot more than 140 characters and not giving you any room to respond. Twitter is almost like it's constantly all of these pauses. It's an endless series of pauses that create this space for dialogue and conversation. What would you say is the right purpose for which to use Twitter? I think that that's a little hard to answer with a, with a platform like Twitter because it's a different kind of tool than some of the tools that we use. It's like a tool in the way that a pencil is a tool or the way that a chalkboard is a tool. It's a tool that lots of people can use for lots of different reasons with lots of different effects. Um, and that's true about a lot of tools, but I would say that a, 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 one of the things I like about Twitter is it becomes this platform that you can use for different reasons in different environments. I might use it one way in one class, but I might use it very differently in another class. And any, any student who came up to me and said, how should I be using Twitter? My answer would be to ask them, well, how do you want to use Twitter? What do you want to get out of Twitter? Why are you using in this space? What, you know, and it also has to do with our personalities. You know, some of us are very outgoing, extroverted personalities, and that person might use Twitter in a slightly different way than someone who's really using Twitter to help launch their music career. When I spoke with Steve Wheeler back on episode 38, he challenged me because I used the phrase talking about digital natives and digital immigrants. And one of the things he emphasized was trying to do away with those, those names and that it was all about context is what he described. It's the context with which you use the tool. So I'm going to go back at it again because I can't resist because in my teaching, I teach all the way from undergraduate up to doctoral levels. Yes, the doctoral level students tend to be older and that generation there tends to be a lot more concerns about privacy. And I do say you can sign up for Twitter and you can have an anonymous account. Just let me know what it is so I can engage with you. But there still is just a, a real strong concern about that. Is there a way that you attempt to address that as you're teaching sometimes older students or, or maybe you find that in, in younger students as well? 
Well, one of the things I, I often use is I use the word literacies, uh, literacies plural, essentially to, to point out that the, it, it's a complex space. You might know how to do one thing in the space, but you might not know how to do another. One kind of interaction within a space like Twitter might feel familiar, whereas another kind of interaction might feel unfamiliar. When I think about that issue of privacy, I think that each person has to find a different relationship to these tools and sort of build their own sort of self inside of the network and make critical decisions about how they're going to put themselves in the network. Are they going to have a picture of themselves? Are they going to use pictures of their kids? Are they going to talk about their wedding on Twitter? Are they going to have pictures of their spouse on Twitter? So there's really this idea that privacy is an on or off switch. Mm. I think that that, I mean, essentially one of the things is having a kind of sense of privacy literacy, having a sense of publicness as a literacy um, that we all need to engage with and make decisions about. Um, I think anyone who imagines that they can just become private and flick a switch is not really understanding how these networks work. You are on Twitter whether you want to be on Twitter or not. You are indexed by Google whether you want to be indexed by Google or not. And sometimes the person who flicks the switch and said, I'm just not going to be in the space, doesn't realize the extent to which they already are in the space. And so there's a way in which engaging in these networks becomes a way for you to take ownership of mm -hmm. the space so that you can be present in the space the way that you want to be present in the space rather than the way that other people are making you present in the space, if that makes sense. Yeah, it reminds um, me of there was the school in the Northeast, I can't remember what it was, but they were having some racial tensions that were being expressed through, and I'm forgetting the name of the service, you might remember it. This is twice now in this episode. Or <laughs> what the heck is it called? Uh, I, I, anyway, I, I mentioned I want to stay away from that site. It's a location-based social network. And, and I'll put it in the show notes at teachinginhighered.com slash 57 for anyone who's interested in knowing about the story and about that service. But I loved these professors at this Northeastern University who said, we're not going to stay away from that network. We're going to go in there and start honoring our students and acknowledging the wonderful things that they're doing and letting those people know who are expressing those racial, the racial hatred, we're here. We hear this and this is not acceptable and that's not the kind of culture we have here. Yeah, I'm guessing, I think the name of the tool is Yik Yak. Is that's it, it Yik Yak? Yep. Um, and uh, the interesting thing is, I mean, absolutely, at the second that something makes you uncomfortable, I mean, and this maybe comes from my being a, you know, I'm a cultural studies, I'm a humanities professor, that's been my training and background. At the second that something makes you feel uncomfortable, I think that what we need to do is look at that thing. So if your impulse is to turn away, that, that's exactly the thing that you need to look at and that you need to consider. And so if someone thinks, I never want to be on Twitter as a platform, my recommendation to them as a, sort of as a human would be to say, well, maybe go on Twitter and see what it is about that platform that scares you so much. Create an, anon an anonymous account and sort of root around. I mean, what it, what it is for me is it's like dumping out the Legos on the table and sifting through them. Sure, you can decide that you don't want to build anything. You can decide that you want to put them back into a pail and sell them at a garage sale, but it's that sifting through the Legos that helps us understand what they are and why we're afraid of them. 
Um, and I think that that's really a critical thing. I mean, and, that, and that's how we develop the literacies that will help us figure out what to do with the tool that comes out 10 years from now. Mm -hmm. 10 years from now, it'll be a different tool. And if we're not doing the critical work of engaging right now, then we won't know how to use that tool that comes out 10 years or how to reject that tool that comes out 10 years from now. Because so often, we are part of things. We are part of the digital, you know, we're being tracked uh, without us knowing that it's happening. And so I think that engaging in these spaces becomes a way of taking, you know, essentially taking, having agency in the space or as much agency as it's possible to have. I enjoyed so much reading the colorful listing of classes that you teach. And I'm just going to list off a few of them. Zombies, horror film, haptic interfaces. And I'm sure I'm just mentioning a, a, a small portion of them. Would you share a way you've used Twitter specifically in some of these more colorful classes? Well, one of the things that I really like is I like um, thinking about Twitter as a as an improv space. So, base both a space for trying on ideas, as I talked about earlier, but also as a space for trying on different kinds of identities. Um, so, I, along with a colleague Pete Roraba, we invented a game called Twitter versus Zombies, um, and we've the game has run in about six or seven different iterations. But for me, that game was a it was a way to have students learning critical literacies uh, for within networks. And in a way, Twitter was a red herring because it wasn't that I wanted people to be experts in Twitter. I wanted them to be experts in, in engaging in communities online. Um, and essentially, the improvisation of the game, the play, the sort of playing on the roles, taking on the roles of zombies or survivors in a zombie apocalypse became a fun way to kind of model some of the different literacies that we need to engage in spaces like Twitter. Essentially, the idea is they were tweeting to save their life. So in order to protect themselves from a zombie bite, they had to really quick take a picture of an item in their environment that they were going to you know, keep the zombie at bay with. And so really quickly, to save their life from the zombie, they had to figure out, well, how do I take a picture and upload it to Twitter and then share it? And I've got to use a hashtag and they've got to all do it within you know, 10 minutes. Wow. Oh, that's fun. I, that's a great... I'm the... Tuck that away for some of the students I teach who really have an aversion to it to try to maybe have some fun and then and maybe lower some of those concerns. Speaking of concerns, there are people who who purposely will try to have a huge separation between the personal and the professional and then some who seem to have less concern. Is there any and, and of course, this is a very personal thing. This is this is just you. But anything that you consider, whether you post about it on Twitter or not? You know, I, and also the interesting thing is that you feel like you have to have a different self on Twitter, on Facebook, <laughs> on certainly on Yik Yak, like, and then in the real world, quote unquote, real world. And then also like, how are we going to act when we're in the classroom? How are we going to act when we're at the grocery store? So there's a way in which we're negotiating these identities. We're negotiating our various selves, not just online, but in the, you know, in the physical world as well. Um, and even just as I say that, the physical world, well, why isn't the digital world also physical? You know, we talk about on-ground versus online learning. When I'm learning online, my feet are still on the ground, or my arm is, or my leg is. Um, and so there's a way in which our physicality becomes something that we think about. It also becomes something, I think, that can be potentially dangerous in networks like this, because we still are physical selves. When we go and put our personal lives out in these spaces, you know, sometimes people people can take advantage of it in various different ways. Um, and I don't think that's unique to Twitter. As far as me, how I make those decisions, I, I think it changes 
um, almost year to year, I used to be a person who never put much of my personal life on Twitter. I would put personal things on Facebook, but Twitter was really a professional. It was really a pedagogical. It was a way to interact with my students. It was not a place where I shared a lot of personal information about myself. I was very warm on Twitter. I was very friendly. I was very personable, but I didn't reveal things about myself. That actually changed really dramatically about a year ago. Gay marriage was legalized in the state of Wisconsin for a single week, and I got married during that week to my husband. Mm -hmm. And as we were getting, we were going out to get married and no one was going to be at our wedding because it was literally, we decided to get married and then got married the next day because it was this one week window in the state of Wisconsin where it was legalized. And I looked to my husband that morning, like literally an hour before we were going to go to the courthouse. And I said, can I live tweet this? <laughs> and he's actually very private mm. and um, very introverted. And he, without even a pause, he said, yes. And the idea was that some things need to be public. That's one of the things I tweeted. I tweeted the word, some things need to be public. Mm. And so there's a way in which it became this moment where I said, you know, I actually, there's a reason why I need to put a really personal thing out inside of this very public space. It's a moment where that felt really important for me to do that. And interestingly, since I did that, like once you get married on Twitter, once you live tweet your own wedding, um, all of a sudden, it's like it changed the way that I engaged with the network. Um, and I couldn't go back. I couldn't go back to the, the space before where I didn't share that kind of thing. I, it's like I had opened Pandora's box or a can of worms or whatever it was. That's a powerful illustration. And thank you for being vulnerable enough to share it with us. I, I thought I had the answer. I don't know if you listened, and I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes. I don't know if you listened to the episode of This American Life where they spoke about changing minds about the issue of gay marriage there. And that research has since been completely identified as being all the data falsified. Did you, are you familiar with this? Uh, but only so vaguely, but I, I think that we could probably still talk about yes, it. Yes, I'm sure. I'm sure we, well, I thought because, because so much of it, and, and I do identify so much with what you're saying, where there's a different persona for me on the face on Facebook versus Twitter, et cetera. But I think about wanting to be able to change minds and how just posting a link to something, even if the link is full of very factual data, that what, what research has shown us is that, that we tend to get more rooted into our beliefs, that that's false, even when presented with data contrary to our existing beliefs. At any rate, the podcast had, had shared about that actually people were changing their minds about the issue of gay marriage when the person would go out and really listen to them and hear their stories of people that they love in their life and they could find those common grounds. And I was so sad to find out that the data had been falsified and hope that people do continue. And I, and I guess, so it's for me, it's kind of wanting to figure out where is it worth being vulnerable enough because it's something so personal. I mean, this is your husband. That is, that is incredibly personal to you. Versus yeah, well, and I mean, I, it, we took it pretty far. And I mean, we, uh, because um, we actually had our first public kiss and our first public kiss was on, tw like I tweeted mm -hmm. our first public kiss. You know, and I'm each of these tweets, he's like peer reviewing the tweet before I send it out. <laughs> and I'm like, you sure you're all comfortable <laughs> with this one? So like our, per we had been to, we've been together eight years before we got married. And then our first public kiss was on, was shared in real time on Twitter. Um, and to me, I, I actually really do believe, like just my anecdotal experience is that when there are actual human beings that are sharing things with me, 
I am much more likely to trust the thing that's being shared. When it's a human being that I feel like I know them in, in some even small way, it's, um, it's sort of that idea of making connections with people and that it's actually the connection that helps me pay a different kind of attention to what it is that they're sharing. I've never read, I don't read the newspaper anymore in any kind of conventional way. Twitter is actually my newspaper now. Mm -hmm. I, and it feels, and I get so much more out of it than I used to get out of flipping through a newspaper. What I'm now flipping through is people that I know, or at least that I know in some small way, sharing things with me. And I feel like I'm more likely to read things when they share. I'm more likely to actually pay attention to them. And I don't know, I mean, I don't know the extent to which this is true for everybody. But it feels like I know a lot of people who have a similar experience, who feel like essentially drawn in, more engaged, more connected to the world, even though we talk about these, these social media or our cell phones disconnecting us from the people that are around us. I actually feel more connected. I have some dear friends on Twitter that I've never met in person and are who are halfway around the world from me. And like that is so valuable. And I guess mm -hmm. one of the reasons why I teach Twitter to my students and I teach various different uh, ways of approaching social media or networked communities is because I want my students to have that experience too. I want them to know someone in a place that's so different from the place that they're in. So like I have a very close friend in Egypt, mm -hmm. Maha Bali, who I just adore and I've never met her in person, and yet I feel really close to her and connected, and I get a view of the world that's so different than the view that I get in a, in a town like Madison, Wisconsin, which in a lot of ways, it's an American town. It's a quote-unquote American town. Are there any technology tools that you use to help you in your teaching? Because I think about the I mean, I, I use Twitter in, in some aspects of my class, but ho what holds me back from using it more is I can't track this. I can't, I can't make it measurable. Or, is there some trick out there or do I have to let that go? So my answer to that is that there's two, there's two different kinds of things that I think that I hear you referring to. One is the sense of how do we parse all this information that's coming at us. So we have, uh, you know, I follow 3,500 people on Twitter. There's no way that I can actually engage substantively with all 3,500 of those people. So I have to use various tools that help me see different pieces of that group at any individual time. So I use, a, I use the tool TweetDeck in order to kind of put, essentially put subsets of the stuff I'm following into columns, and then I can kind of parse the information that way. But I also find that that's a little bit overwhelming to students. And so I think starting with just the Twitter app itself and thinking about how can we change the way we think about what we're seeing on the screen so that we don't get overwhelmed by it. And uh, Howard Rheingold has a great book called NetSmart where he talks about filter failure. And he says that it's not that there's too much information coming at us. It's in fact that our filters are failing, that we're not able to make sense of all of this information. And for me, one of the reasons why we have difficulty is because we expect ourselves to hear it all, to understand it all, to uh, make sense of it all. And I think instead of Twitter as like dipping my feet into a stream, you're not collecting water into a cup of, into a cup. You're not collecting water into a cup. You're instead dipping your toe into a stream. And you're only going to get one little tiny bit of the stream at any one time. And so to try and expect 
yourself to read every single tweet that passes through on your feed, I think is not really understanding how this kind of rolling stream works. That would be like expecting yourself to hear every word that's said in a common space, every word that's said in the city park. You're at the city park. Would you ever expect yourself to hear every word? No, instead what you do is you overhear stuff and you talk to one person for a minute. Um, and then you move from one person to another, or like a cocktail party. Would you ever expect yourself to be a part of every conversation that's happening at the co cocktail party? Would you say if you weren't a part of every conversation at the cocktail party that you weren't there at the cocktail party? No, you'd say, I was at the cocktail party. I didn't hear every conversation because how would you hear every conversation? Instead, I, I talked about this person with this, and I talked about that person about, with that. But I think we have a kind of unrealistic unreal, expectation of ourselves if we expect ourselves to see every feed, to see every tweet that comes through, to see every Facebook post that comes through. Tell me about your assignment of the Twitter essay. Um, the Twitter essay. The Twitter essay is actually what, I, what got me started using Twitter in the classroom. Um, in 2007 is when I first logged on to Twitter, and I think I started teaching the Twitter essay in 2008. And I, at that point, I really hardly used Twitter at all, except for teaching. Um, so I didn't even use it as a professional network. I didn't use it personally. I really only used it as a teaching tool. I was teaching writing, and I wanted to use it as a tool to get my students thinking about the, the way that tiny, tiny choices that we make can have a really big rhetorical effect. So essentially, one character, one word, can change the meaning of a sentence, can change the meaning of a, t of a tweet. Um, and one thing that's interesting is that even one punctuation mark can radically change the meaning of a tweet. So the activity was essentially to have them write an essay, and they can only use 140 characters to write the essay. And I actually started by how, drawing it on a graph paper where they would where they would basically draw a square around 140 boxes on the graph paper, and then they could use each square on the graph paper to put a single character. And what's interesting is they find out, wow, punctuation marks are really powerful. It only counts as a single character, and yet it has so much impact, so much power. And then it also became an exercise in figuring out how they could remix, how they could playfully think about what could happen in a 140-character space. Um, and then the, the really fun part was that then I then would have the students peer review each other's tweets. So we would actually spend a whole day, sometimes multiple days, writing a single 140-character tweet. So they'd compose the tweet, they would um, peer review the tweet, they would put the tweet out in the world, they would then publicly respond to each other's tweets, and sometimes I would even quote-unquote grade the tweet by writing a tweet in response to their tweet. So in a sense that it, you know, I, I could only take 140 characters to respond to the work of the, of the student. Hmm. And speaking of logistically grading things, how many students do you have in your average class? What does this tend to look like when you're grading Twitter? Is it more like a participation kind of grade? Um, I've taught the Twitter essay in classes of 20, and I've taught it in classes of 20,000. Hmm. Um, and so for me, it, it has to be a little bit different depending on the group. Personally, I am not someone who does objective grading. It's, it's, to me, grading is fundamentally subjective. It's a conversation that I have with my students that they play an active role in. So I do a lot of peer evaluation and a lot of self-assessment, and then I intermingle that with my own feedback to the students. The Twitter essay, for example, becomes a really good space for something like peer or self-assessment. Talking about what did I learn by doing this activity, the Twitter essay, blogging about the tweet that they wrote, 
peer-reviewing each other's tweets, talking about how they were or were not effective, talking about their own interpretation of each other's tweets. All of those became assessment mechanisms, in a sense. Mm -hmm. Very different from me putting a grade on a tweet. I actually recently saw a rubric for tweets, and it was a huge rubric, like six columns by six columns, and all to assess one or a handful of tweets. And I just thought there are way more than 140 characters in that rubric. So, I mean, the challenge is, if we're going to have our students tweeting, can we think of a, a ways of assessing their work that don't take more than 140 characters? Or can we develop a rubric that is less than 140 characters? Because at the point that you're handing a student a six-by-six-columned rubric to compose a tweet, at that point, I mean, to me, that sucks all the love. That sucks all the sort of magic uh, out of what a tweet actually is and what it can do in the world. What can you tell us about the Twitter fishbowl? The fishbowl exercise is something that people may be familiar with where you treat, create two circles. You have an inner circle that is having a conversation and then you have an outer circle that's observing and then people can tap into the inner circle. And so essentially you have this really dynamic flowing discussion where only six people are talking at any given time, but different people are tapping from the outside circle into the inside circle. And when I do this activity, I always just play along with the students rather than um, rather than being a judge or an MC of it. And so what I, when I added Twitter to this activity, I had students in the outer circle tweeting and students in the inner circle talking. So in a sense, it became this kind of Twitter Greek chorus. Hmm. And so it uh, allowed them to be more active on the outside circle, observing this conversation on the inside. It was kind of like a, a back channel. But since the people on the inside circle were facing each other, what was happening in the Twitter feed wasn't visible to them. But then once they moved to the outer circle, they could kind of catch up and see how people, in a sense, it became an assessment mechanism, a peer-driven assessment mechanism for what was happening in the conversation. And then at the end of that activity, I would always ask the students, I would say, so now let's talk about, let's move to a meta level and let's talk about how these discussions happened. How was the Twitter discussion different from what was happening in the face-to-face -face inner circle? What were, the, what were the sort of rhetorics of these different spaces? How did the conversation function differently? This is the part of the show where we do recommendations, and I already thought of what my recommendation is going to be, and that is for anyone who's listening that wants to learn more about teaching with Twitter, you have a class that you are delivering through Digital Pedagogy, which we, people can take to learn more about it. And I'm going to have a link to that in the show notes, but is there anything else you want to share about the class that people should know who are listening? Yes. Um, so Hybrid Pedagogy just launched what we're calling Digital Pedagogy Lab Courses. We're doing an on-ground institute this summer, and then we've started a series of online professional development courses. And they launch as early as January, where we have a class called the Flipped Classroom in January. And then the, the second class that we're offering is me teaching uh, a class called Teaching with Twitter. And it's going to be a two-week intensive online professional development course where we're gonna, it's going to be very kind of peer-driven, I'm going to be with you and we're going to be essentially experimenting both inside of Twitter and also inside of uh, uh, the Canvas learning management system. And yeah, it should be a good time. What would you like to recommend today to the listeners? Um, I really want to recommend the book that I mentioned earlier, which was uh, NetSmart by Howard Rheingold. And uh, what I would say about this book is that it is the anyone who is nervous about technology, anyone who is worried about technology, anyone who's excited about technology and wants to figure out better how to navigate technological spaces or digital spaces like Twitter, this is the book that I recommend. It basically is like a guide to living in the digital world. 
Well, I just want to thank you so much for accepting my invitation to be on the show. I have admired your work for some time. It was hard to narrow down what I wanted to talk to you about. So I hope that you'll consider coming back and being on the show in the future. Yeah, I would love to be back anytime. Once again, I am blown away with so much information. Thanks once again to Jesse for being on the show. As always, if you have suggestions of guests or topics that you would like to hear from on the show, you can do that at teachinginhighered.com slash feedback. And I really recommend if you haven't subscribed to the weekly update yet, that's a great way to automatically get in your inbox all of the links that we talked about on the show. And I accompany that email with an article about teaching or productivity each and every week. Thanks so much for listening. And I look forward to the next time on Teaching in Higher Ed.